असतो मद्गमय तमसो मूतिर्गमय मृत्योर्मात गमय ओ शास् फ्रॉम दि अनरियल टू द रियल लीडस फ्रॉम डार्कनेस टू लाइट लीडस फ्रॉम डेथ टू इमोर्टैलिटी Om peace 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 Good morning everyone On this lovely Santa Barbara day Some of you might have been scratching your heads about the title today Others might have gotten it I'm surprised at how many Americans didn't get the reference in the in the title today Gat Satva Many of you know right I assume What's the reference Yeah, got milk. Yeah, but there are like two or three Americans that said, I don't get it. But anyone who was here in the 90s would know that there's a ubi- there was a ubiquitous ad campaign for milk. The milk industry put out, you know, got milk question mark big celebrities had these milk mustaches. That's the reference. In case there are a lot of people who watch outside of the US and so it's more for them than for Americans. <clears throat> so sometimes I'm asked, what are my two desert island books and i have a ready answer i say one bhagavad gita and two the gospel of sri ramakrishna in the original bengali because i i can read bengali and it's better in the original one of the things that's striking about both these texts is that they're both they teach they have very high spiritual teachings and at the same time they have very very concrete down to earth practical spiritual advice for ordinary spiritual aspirants and you find both in equal measure in both these scriptures and i think that's part of what makes them so valuable and both these texts insist on the inseparability of spiritual teachings philosophical teachings spiritual truths from these practical teachings the way that um traditionally bhagavad gita is described they describe the scripture as brahma vidyayam yoga shastre this is said at the end of every chapter when you tr- when you recite it traditionally brahma vidyayam means it's a science of brahman it explains the highest truths about ultimate reality but it's equally yoga shastra it's a practical spiritual manual and one can say exactly the same thing about the gospel of sri ramakrishna because sri ramakrishna often talks about the nature of god talks about the six chakras so the, talks about the highest flights of spiritual experience and at the same time he comes down to our level and gives us very practical advice about day-to-day spiritual practice how to handle obstacles and challenges in in spiritual life and one of the striking commonalities between these two texts is that both of these texts both Sri Ramakrishna in the gospel and the Bhagavad Gita talk again and again about the three gunas you'll find it in chapters 14 17 and 18 of the Bhagavad Gita and you'll find Sri Ramakrishna mentioning the three gunas constantly in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna and you might ask why why is this doctrine of the three gunas so important so that's what i want to talk about today one thing first of all is this is translation issue guna is a sanskrit term 
It's often translated as quality, qualities. I think a better translation might be energies. But I don't think there's any exact translation, but I think energies might be a little better. So there are three basic types of energy, according to this Vedantic and Sankhya, that's another school of Indian philosophy that precedes Vedanta. And they're the ones who actually developed this theory of three gunas. There are three basic types of energy. There's tamas, the lowest kind of energy, then rajas, and then sattva. These are the three. And so I'll explain them very briefly, and then we'll go into more details. Why are they relevant? The tamasika energy, the energy of tamas, it makes us feel sleepy, drowsy, lazy. I hope nobody's feeling that way right now. It makes you inclined to procrastinate when you have a looming deadline and you wait to put it off until the last minute or maybe pass the deadline and... <laughs> okay. But it also is... A, tamas is also... Tamas literally means darkness or blackness. It's also the source of delusion, of confusion, not knowing what to do in which circumstances. Rajas, the second guna. The energy of rajas, this makes us feel restless. I have to do this. It's very, if, if a person is highly rajasic, the worst punishment for that person is to have them sit down for five minutes quietly without anything to do and without you know, anything to listen to or watch because it's like torture for them. So they're very uh, ambitious, full of desires. I want to do this, I want to do that. They, they tend to be very egoistic. Often they tend to show off their own talents or abilities to other people. And they're often very emotional and passionate. These are all qualities of, or manifestations of the rajasika energy, the energy of rajas. And then there's this third energy, sattva. A person in whom sattva predominates tends to be calm, tends to exercise self-control, self-restraint, uh, tends not to be so full of desires and ambitions, but at the same time is not lazy. So there's, there's this very tricky thing in spiritual life because many people confuse tamas for sattva. Tamas, remember, is that lowest kind of energy which makes us feel dull, not want to do anything. And extremely sattvic people might be mistaken as Tamasika people, why? Because they might be spending a large part of the day in meditation. And people might think they're lazy. But that's not the same kind of laziness. It's not laziness at all, in fact. It might seem like it from the outside. Uh, it's very different. So tamas, the energy of tamas makes you feel lazy. The energy of raja, rajas, the second one, makes you full of desires and ego and want to do this and that and have ambitions. And sattva makes you indrawn makes you less interested in things that are happening in the external world, which doesn't mean that you withdraw from the world. It doesn't mean that you become a monk, necessarily. You can continue to do everything in the world, but without attachment, without emotional attachments. So another feature, another manifestation of the Rajasika energy, that second one, is attachment, emotional attachments. We'll get to this in more detail later. So sattva, when you have a lot of sattva, you'll have the same relationships, the same spouse, same kids, same job, and yet your attitude towards those people and those things will change dramatically. Okay? And so the title of this talk is Gat Sattva for this reason, is that the first priority in spiritual life, the first priority is to become as sattvic as possible, to cultivate as much of that third highest energy as possible. 
This is extremely important and extremely practical. The reason why I emphasize this is because everyone knows that the goal of spiritual life is spiritual illumination, right? Whatever you want to call it. Call it liberation, call it enlightenment, nirvana, take your pick. God-realization. But that's a very, very high ideal, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for it. All of us should be striving for it. That's why you've come here today. But more practically on a day-to-day level, we need to keep in mind a more proximate goal. The ultimate goal is liberation, illumination, enlightenment. The proximate goal is becoming as sattvic as possible. Okay? This is what we need to struggle with and try to achieve on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis in in our daily lives. Sri Ramakrishna, <clears throat> he says the following, explaining why becoming sattva, <clears throat> explaining why cultivating sattva is so important in spiritual life. He says the following, God cannot be realized without sattva, love, discrimination, kindness, and so on. It is the very nature of rajas to involve a person in many worldly activities. That is why rajas degenerates into tamas, That is is why rajas, that second guna, degenerates into tamas. If a person is entangled in too many activities, he surely forgets God. He becomes more and more attached to lust and greed. So notice what Shramkrish is saying here. It's very important. He's saying, the more you engage in worldliness, worldly activities, that doesn't mean, he's not telling everybody to become monks. That's, That's a common confusion, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you have a worldly attitude toward, as I said, your spouse, your kids, and the things you do in your daily life. What is, it, what is a worldly attitude? It means an egoistic attitude, a selfish attitude, full of attachments, desires, selfishness. Worldliness. This, if you have a, a very worldly attitude, what happens? You, you become more and more rajasic. You cultivate rajas. And rajas is the seat, is the source of lust and greed, which are the two main hindrances in spiritual life. So now, because I think the majority of spiritual aspirants, when they're told this, they don't have as much trouble with handling other things, the other obstacles in spiritual life, like food and other things. But one of the most difficult things to deal with are lust and greed, because these are so deeply rooted in the ego. These are the kind of twin pillars of the ego. And often, tackling lust and greed head-on doesn't work. You fall flat on your face. So the beauty of understanding this three gunas paradigm, this idea of these three energies, is that we can tackle these fundamental obstacles in spiritual life, lust and greed, indirectly, which is, I think, the smarter way. Sometimes you have to tackle lust, for instance, directly, but in general, in our day-to-day life, the best way to handle it is indirectly. What do I mean by indirect? It means if you know that the seat of lust and greed is rajas, the more sattvic you become, the more lust and greed will just kind of drop away. You don't actually have to actively and consciously you can treat it like it's like this, you know, World War III with, with lust and greed. It's not like that. Become more sattvic and you're going to just feel less lustful and less greedy. That's the beauty of understanding this three gunas paradigm. So how do we cultivate sattva? We'll get to that in a second. So that's, that's one of the main points of this talk. So, 
Understanding this paradigm of the three energies is extremely valuable for all spiritual aspirants in two respects. First, it helps us to assess ourselves, analyze ourselves. I say that the, I, I often say this in my talks, that the first step in spiritual life is what I call brutally honest self-assessment. Not just self-assessment, because the, the ego is deeply invested in a very rosy self-assessment. Oh, we're so great, and look at how bad other people are. No, brutally honest self-assessment is the first step in spiritual life. What are we, warts and all? Where do we stand now? What are our strengths from a spiritual standpoint? But what are our weaknesses? And we have to be willing to admit those weaknesses to ourselves, if to nobody else, but at least to ourselves. Because there's a great danger of self-deception in spiritual life and thinking that we're more evolved and more advanced than we really are. So we have to be cautious about these things. So this understanding the workings of the three gunas, the three energies, really helps us in this first step in spiritual life, which is brutally honest self-assessment. Assessing where we stand now. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Which guna, which energy predominates in us right now? Be honest. Is it tamas? Is it rajas? Is it sattva? Some combination. Usually it's a combination. But which one predominates? What are you mostly, primarily? That's the question. So first step in spiritual life. Second key question that this paradigm of the three energies helps us with is, Okay, after we understand, after we do this brutally honest self-assessment, let's say that I've, I, it turns out that I'm extremely rajasic. What steps can I take to become more sattvic and less rajasic? How do we cultivate this sattva guna, which leads us to illumination ultimately, which points us at least to illumination if it can't take us there? Why do I say, why did I make that qualification just now because even sattva cannot take us to the highest goal of illumination that's true and um, uh, Sri Ramakrishna was fond of telling this wonderful story about a wealthy person walking along a street and there are three robbers who come steal all his money and then one of these robbers says this robber I'll tell you so this robber says we don't have any use for him anymore. Let's kill him. We've taken his money. Who needs him? Let's kill him. That first robber represents tamas because tamas destroys. It makes us regress in spiritual life. The second robber says, oh, what's the point in killing him? But let's bind him to a tree so that he doesn't run off and tell the cops about us. Second robber, Rajas, the Rajasika energy, that second one. Because Rajas binds, it binds us to this world and worldliness. It prevents us from making spiritual progress. What about the third robber? After these other two robbers go and bind this guy to a tree, the third robber quietly comes back to this poor fellow who's been robbed and is now tied to a tree helplessly. He's full of compassion. He says, I'm so sorry about what they've done to you. Let me unbind you. And he very gently and carefully unbinds him so that he's not hurt. Takes him by the hand, lifts him up, takes him to the main road, and then points in a certain direction and says, you need to go in this direction to get to where you want to go. And then this wealthy man, or who was a wealthy man before he was robbed, he says, well, you helped me so much. 
So why don't you come with me? And he says, where you're going, I cannot follow you. I can't take you that far. But I'm pointing you in the right direction. So that third robber represents sattva. That third highest energy. The idea is that Cultivating sattva is a prerequisite for illumination, but it can't take us all the way to illumination. But once we become sufficiently sattvic, the mind itself becomes your guru. And then, you'll just be, you, you, it's by God's grace ultimately, but you'll know how to then ultimately transcend sattva. But to think that the first step now is to transcend sattva is a huge mistake in spiritual life. The first step is cultivating sattva. Let's leave transcending sattva for a later time because that's not relevant right now. The main thing is cultivating sattva. Because only then that we'll make real progress in spiritual life and reach the ultimate goal. Okay, so <clears throat> Bhagavad Gita, you'll find in chapter 17 and 18, it categorizes many different things that we do on a daily basis in terms of these three energies. I'll just mention some of these things. Faith. There are different kinds of faith. We might think that faith is inherently sattvic. It sounds very spiritual. No, but there are different kinds of faith. And I'm not going to go into the details. Another thing, food. Something we all eat. We have to eat, otherwise we won't live here much longer. There are different kinds of food. And we'll get to this in a second in a little bit more detail. <clears throat> Krishna does not actually distinguish sattvic of food from rajasika food from tamasika food. He distinguishes the kind of food that sattvika people like and the kind of food rajasika people like and the kind of food tamasika people like. Okay, but food is categorized in terms of these three gunas. Sacrifice. Again, we might think sacrifice is inherently spiritual, but no. There's a more rajasika way of doing sacrifice with pomp and, you know, in order to attract attention, and, for instance. Austerity. Krishna says that there are three different ways of performing austerities. Again, you might think this is also very spiritual, isn't it? It need not be. And one of the greatest dangers in spiritual life is spiritual ego. And a person who's you know, standing on one leg for 50 years, if he develops an ego, thinking that, look, nobody else can do what I'm doing, then that's a hindrance in spiritual life. It'll just strengthen your ego. That's a form of rajasika austerity, for instance. <clears throat> charity. We might think again, my goodness, what could be better than charity as a spiritual practice? Again, there's rajasika charity and there's sattvika charity. Rajasika charity is, let's say the person's a billionaire and they donate $100 million to some noble cause, but there's a catch. I want my name emblazoned on a giant golden plaque so that everyone knows that I donated this money. Rajasika charity. Sattvika person will anonymously donate. They don't care for the recognition. It's just another example. And there are many other things that Gita categorizes in terms of these three energies, uh, knowledge, different kinds of knowledge, knowing things. This is also very subtle. And um, what Krishna says is, tamasika knowledge is mistaking a part for the whole. This is the root, ultimately, of all fanaticism and one-sidedness. Thinking that what I understand of something is it, is the be-all and end-all and everyone else is wrong. That's a tamasika way of thinking. That's a tamasika kind of knowledge, mistaking the part for the whole. Rajasika knowledge is categorizing things in their compartments, which is good in a way, but at the same time, you lose sight, you get kind of lose sight of the forest for the trees. You're so interested in the micro level at the trees that you lose sight of the broader picture. Sattvika knowledge recognizes the individual trees, 
but never lose sight of the forest. And always seeks unity in diversity. Sri Ramakrishna himself is a wonderful example. Krishna in the Gita is another example. They were aware of so many different conflicting philosophies, conflicting, apparently conflicting spiritual practices, and their whole aim was to show that there's an underlying harmony. Sri Ramakrishna knew that there are so many different religions in the world. Each religion talks about God in a particular way. And Sri Ramakrishna is always trying to point out the unity, the, un- the underlying unity behind all these religions, behind all these spiritual paths. That's a sattvika kind of knowledge. I can go on. He, Krishna talks about uh, intelligence in terms of three kinds of gunas, the three energies, perseverance, happiness. We'll get to happiness because I think this is extremely important for us. Three different kinds of happiness. So we'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Sri Ramakrishna in the gospel also often explains different people's behavior and activities in terms of these different energies. And I think that's also very interesting and important. So I want to give you a couple examples. Bhakti. Sri Ramakrishna says there are three different kinds of bhakti. Bhakti means devotion for God. He says, the rajasika bhakta, devotee, is the person who, in the middle of a crowd of people, will wear kind of ostentatious religious garb, will have a necklace of what are called rudraksha beads. It's a, it's a kind of, uh, it's a necklace used for repeating a mantra. But strewn with gems, Sri Ramakrishna was a master of these little details. He was a great storyteller. So he said, strewn with gems to attract even more attention. And this person, this Rajasika Bhakta, will pray very loudly in public so that, and kind of once in a while checking to make sure that other people are noticing him or her while doing, engaging in these prayers or these spiritual practices. Even meditation can become a competition in this way. The moment there's group meditation, often what ends up happening is, instead of people doing whatever they're supposed to do, med- do mindfulness meditation or concentrate on whatever form of the divine in their heart that they're supposed to, once in a while they'll open their eyes slowly and just look at, boy, that person sitting so straight, how is he doing that? Full lotus, that's incredible. I can only do half lotus. And you start thinking about these things, and man, that person, has sat, he's been there for three hours. How does he do that? All these things can creep in, even in what seem to be very spiritual activities like meditation. So you have to be very, very careful about these things. So this is the Rajasika devotee, spiritual aspirant, according to Sri Krishna. You do spiritual practices, which is good, but there's this kind of implicit or uh, just under the surface, there's this desire for attracting attention, having other people praise you for doing such wonderful spiritual practices. By contrast, the sattvika devotee, the sattvika spiritual aspirant, Sri Ramakrishna says, just as an example, he says, this is the person who in the middle of the night, and he's thinking of India here in Kolkata, full of mosquitoes. You're spared here, mosquitoes, as far as I can tell. Even in Hollywood, we have a few mosquitoes, but I've never been bitten by a mosquito yet in Santa Barbara. Are they not a thing here or rare? They're very rare. Okay, so once in a while. Anyway, rare. rare. Kolkata, not rare. It's a kind of epidemic there. So you have to sleep with a mosquito net. This giant mosquito net. Every night. And so Sri Ramakrishna says, the sattvika devotee, the sattvika spiritual aspirant, is somebody in the middle of the night in that person's mosquito net will be quietly engaged in spiritual practices almost throughout the night. Without, nobody knows what that person is doing. The person might wake up late because he's been up all night doing spiritual practices. Other people will say, oh, what a lazy good-for-nothing. He's always sleeping and, and he'll quietly, he won't say anything. Satvika. 
Now, there's one catch here. This is very interesting. The only time that Sri Ramakrishna praises a tamasika quality is in this context. He says, there's a ta- what about the tamasika bhakta? He says, and I'll read it to you. He says, a person endowed with tamasika bhakti has burning faith. Such a devotee literally extorts boons from God, even as a robber falls upon a man and plunders his money. Bind, beat, kill, that is his way, the way of the Dakoites. He says, O oh God, I am chanting your name. How can I be a sinner? O oh God, you are my own mother. You must reveal yourself to me. And a very smart devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, Girish Ghosh, the great playwright, he's a brilliant man, he immediately said, smiling, it is you, sir, who teach us tamasika bhakti. <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna himself was a good example of a tamasika bhakti. So in every other case, as far as I'm aware, in the case of Sri Ramakrishna's teachings and also in the Bhagavad Gita, tamas is something that should be avoided. This is the only case where Sri Ramakrishna says tamasika bhakti is a good thing. Of course, sattvika bhakti is also very good. But they're two different spiritual attitudes, both of which are very good. Rajasika bhakti. Rajasika, engaging in spiritual practices in a rajasika manner, full of rajas. That's what should be avoided. Okay. Another thing, another question to ask in your day-to-day life as a spiritual aspirant is, how do you interact with other people? Look at your relationships with other people, your loved ones, family, friends, co-workers, and so on and so forth. One time, this is recorded in the gospel, there's somebody who comes, who's a householder devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, and he had some learning. He was a kind of, not a scholar, but he, he studied a lot. And so he's having this kind of very vocal philosophical dispute or debate with a friend of his. Sri Krishna heard this with a smile and says to someone, there, he is delivering himself. That is the characteristic of rajas. It stimulates the desire to lecture and to show off one's scholarship. But sattva, so here I am, but sattva makes one introspective. It makes one hide one's virtues. But I must say that Mohima, who, he's the person that he was poking fun at. Mohima is a grand person. He takes such delight in spiritual talk. But notice the contrast here. A sattvika person is somebody who is full of virtues but hides them. He doesn't trumpet them to the world. The rajasika person who also has virtues but is eager to kind of show other people, look at how great I am. That's the difference. Now I promised I'd get to food, so here we are with food. I hope I don't make you hungry. First I'll start with the gospel. Sri Ramakrishna says one day, one of his beloved disciples, who later became Swami Brahmananda, his name was Rakhal. He's considered the spiritual child of Sri Ramakrishna. Rakhal had indigestion one day. So Sri Ramakrishna says the following, Rakhal has indigestion. It is best to take only sattvic food. Haven't you read about it in the Gita? Don't you read the Gita? <laughs> so he's aware that the Gita categorizes food in terms of these three categories. Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. But as I, point, as I mentioned earlier, he, Krishna doesn't say that there's Sattvika food and Rajasika food and Tamasika food. He says there are Sattvika people who will naturally be inclined to like or prefer a certain kind of food. Rajasika people will naturally feel drawn toward a different kind of food. And Tamasika people, a different kind of food. So what are these foods? Just to break the suspense now. Sattvika, the interesting thing is, it's not, Krishna doesn't say be vegetarian, uh, to the dismay of some people. Vegetarianism or not is a kind of individual choice. It helps some people in spiritual life, and for other people it's uh, less important. Uh, 
But Krishna says, and um, uh, this is, comes from chapter 17, verses 8 through 10 of the Bhagavad Gita, if you're interested in looking it up. The sattvika person prefers food that is nourishing, healthy, easy to digest. See how general the terms are here. Sounds kind of like oatmeal. Ghee is a good example in India. Clarified butter is very popular. It's a sattvika kind of food. Rajasika people tend to like food which is very pungent, strong, has very strong flavors, often very spicy, or very sour, very salty. Um, some people, it's, you know, there's that show. What's the show? Red Wings or something? Hot Wings. Hot Wings. There's contests about how, much, how many spicy hot wings you can eat. And I've seen some people who, the more they eat, the, it's like this kind of perverse pleasure in feeling pain. Because they start sweating, the red, their face turns red, but they love it. There's something. So anyway, this kind of person it tends to have more rajas. If, the, if, if, if they like those kinds of foods, that, that's, they tend to be more rajasic people. And tamasika people, what kind of food do they like? Tamasika people like food that is kind of stale, uh, that's been around in the fridge for a few days. And there's some people who actually like stale food and food that's kind of old, that's cold, even sometimes that's rotting. Okay. So, anyway. There's a great danger here, though, of thinking that food, and just by changing your dietary habits, that you can become a great mahatma, spiritual, spiritual aspirant. That's false. So, food is important, but not nearly as important as many people think it is. At least that's what our tradition says. And each tradition is different. Um, but one of the teachings that I really like of Sri Ramakrishna, he says, Blessed is the person who feels longing for God, though that person eats pork. But shame on the person whose mind dwells on lust and greed, though that person eats the purest food, boiled vegetables, rice, and ghee. It's about priorities. If, you're, if all your energy is spent in what you should eat and what you should not eat, and especially judging others about what they're eating or not eating, you're not going to make, make much progress in spiritual life. But if your priority is becoming more sattvic, reducing lust and greed, then modifying your dietary habits can be a help as well in spiritual life. That, that, that would be at least my position on this. So one way to put it, this is a popular expression, do you live to eat or do you eat to live? Right? So there are many people who much of their mental energy is spent in what am I going to eat in my next meal and oh how delicious it's going to be and then so that, that again is kind of more rajasic that's the idea okay and I've already mentioned charity now I come to a very important one three different kinds of happiness this is mentioned in Bhagavad Gita chapter 18 verses 37 to 39 I'll start with the Rajasika happiness, okay, this middle category. Vishayendriya sanyogad yatadagremritopamam pariname vishamiva tatsukam rajasam smritam. Rajasika happiness is happiness that derives from the contact of the senses with sense objects. In the beginning, sense pleasure is like nectar, but eventually it becomes like poison. This is very important. This explains the logic of all pleasures based on instant gratification. 
all sense pleasures and many other things. You'll feel a momentary happiness and then eventually it's going to become like poison. You're going to feel more unhappiness as a result. And the more you do engage in those kinds of rajasika happiness, the more miserable you become, the more depressed you become. By contrast, sattvika happiness. Yattad agre vishameva parinami mritopamam tatsukham sattvikam proktam atma buddhi prasadajam Sattvika happiness is happiness that is born of the satisfaction of the higher mind, buddhi, and soul, atman. Sattvika happiness, it's exactly the reverse of rajasika happiness, is like poison in the beginning, but eventually it becomes like nectar. This is very profound, this is a very astute psychological observation that Krishna is making here in the Gita. Sattvika forms of happiness always have the touch of the soul in them. It's, a, it's the kind of happiness that derives from a deeper part of our nature, that doesn't come from just the body or the mind, but from the soul. And that's why sattvika forms of happiness have to be cultivated. We don't, often, we don't like them immediately. They tend to be acquired tastes. Spiritual practice is one of the best examples. Some of you might, have, might be initiated in our tradition or some other tradition. You're given a mantra or told to follow certain meditation instructions. In the beginning... There's a certain honeymoon period in the first couple of days when you think you've already attained nirvana or enlightenment, and then after you come down to earth, then the doldrums kick in, practice becomes very mechanical, it becomes like pulling teeth. Sometimes you don't want to do it at all. Like poison in the beginning. Pieces, that's a kind of different thing. But in general, classical music is, is more of an acquired taste, and most people haven't acquired it. All right? So I'll get to that more. There's a reason why. And I'm speaking from personal experience because growing up, I didn't really care for classical music. And then when I started, I, uh, during the pandemic, I watched an uh, online course through Coursera. There's a Yale musicologist named Craig something or other. He gave a class called Introduction to Classical Music. And it really opened my eyes. And since then, I'm, I'm a real lover of classical music. And it directly helps with my spiritual life. So we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so one thing I want to mention, I, I pointed out that this categorization of happiness in terms of these three energies is very profound and very relevant to contemporary psychology. There's an entire movement now called positive psychology. And one of the big figures is Martin Seligman. Have any of you read his book, Authentic Happiness? Have you heard of this book? You at least heard of it. Seligman distinguishes different kinds of happiness, like Gita, actually, in a way. He says, a life based on maximizing pleasure will be a pleasurable life, but at the same time, in the end, you're not gonna, it's not going to be a fulfilling life. It'll be a life ironically filled with unhappiness and depression. And he says, by contrast, a good life and a meaningful life is one based on authentic happiness, trying to maximize authentic happiness. And then the big question is, well, how do we cultivate? What is authentic happiness? How do we cultivate it? He says, number one, identify your signature strengths. Figure out what your inherent strengths are. Second, find a vocation. Find a way of life that helps you to cultivate those inherent strengths. If you can do that, if you can live your life based on these two things, on these two principles, identifying your signature strengths and then finding a way of life and a vocation that, that helps you cultivate 
those strengths. You will find authentic happiness. Again, there's a, there's a direct parallel with the Bhagavad Gita. The Gita again and again talks about swadharma, which means our own law of being. Swabhava is another term used in Sanskrit, our own law of being. Krishna says again and again, discover what your law of being is. What makes you tick? What are your strengths? And then do the work that best helps you to cultivate those strengths. And so the Gita came up with this insight centuries before these positive psychologists like Martin Seligman. Another thing about another thing I love about this paradigm of the three gunas, these three energies, and why I find it so helpful and practical in spiritual life is because it's not fixed for all time. Like, we have to just follow what the Gita says. We can adapt it. We can modify it. It's a flexible framework that can be expanded. We can apply it to right now, to 2023, and the things going on right now. And you find this even, so Sri Ramakrishna actually gives us this motivation to do that. I'll give you uh, uh, at least one example. He says, somebody tells him, I hear you visited Kishab Shen who's one of his beloved householder disciples, a very prominent lecturer. Sri Ramakrishna says, yes, how is he now? And this person says, he hasn't recovered to any extent from his illness. And then Sri Ramakrishna says, I found him to be very rajasic. I had to wait a long time before I could see him. This is a really interesting observation. You don't find this in the Gita or any other text. The tendency in people to, let's say somebody, some important person, a CEO or the president, they have an appointment with you at 10 o'clock in the morning. You come at 9.55. You're sitting there. It's 10 o'clock. You look against 10.10, 10.20. that VIP will come and not even apologize or just, you know. It's a way of increasing their own self-importance to make you wait. There's a certain joy that some people get in making other people wait for them when they make an appointment. That's a sign of rajas, rajasic energy. It's a very astute observation. So, some very practical suggestions. Number one, remember the first step in spiritual life, brutally honest self-assessment. So you make, make this three gunas paradigm your own. Ask yourself, what do I do in the course of the day? From morning, from when I wake up in the morning, to night, even when do I sleep, how much do I sleep, all of that's relevant, 24 hours a day. Just do a kind of inventory and cataloging and be brutally honest, be very honest with yourself. What am I? Am I mostly tamasic? or rajasic, or sattvic. If I'm very tamasic, first step is becoming rajasic. To get out of tamas, you first have to become rajasic, and then you can ascend to sattva. Recently, uh, uh, somebody criticized Swami Vivekananda for saying to the youth of India in the late 19th century, first, build your muscles, and then you can read the Bhagavad Gita. Your first priority should not be to read the Gita. First, build up your biceps, he says this. So this person is stunned. He says, what? See, he's, he's recommending extra physical exercise over reading spiritual scriptures like the Bhagavad Gita. No, it's because India was steeped in tamas at the time. This is colonial India, remember, late 19th century. They didn't want to even get out of bed. They weren't doing anything. They were lazy bums. And so Swamiji said, first, you're tremendously tamasic, become rajasic first. Build up your muscles. Have some energy to do something. Achieve something in your life. Only then are you ready to cultivate sattva. That's the idea. So if you're very tamasic, try to become more radisic first. Achieve something in life. Have desires. Try to make them more spiritual desires if you can. And then you can finally get to sattva. And if you're very radisic, which is very common, I'd say it's more common in the West, 
throughout the world. Try to become more sattvic. What does that mean? First of all, what do you, what's the quality of your spiritual practice? And spiritual practice here is very broad. But first we can talk about meditation, whatever your guru, if you have a guru, if you've been initiated, doing what your guru says on a daily basis. If you're sitting in the meditation room, let's say you're doing repetition of a mantra, which is very common in our tradition. Mantra japa, it's called. How are you doing it? Are you doing it very mechanically? Without really having any concentration or any kind of intensity of longing? That's tamasic. As you do your mantra japa, if your mind is extremely distracted all the time, you're, you're having trouble concentrating on your ishta devata, your chosen deity, the divine, whatever you want to call it, because you're thinking of how, when are you going to cook your next meal, or why did that person say that to me, or this, or you know, uh, oh, now I have to pick up my kid, and this and that. Rajas. That's rajas. That's a rajasika way of doing spiritual practice. And a sattvika way of doing spiritual practice is doing it with intense sincerity and, and concentration, and where there's a real longing for realizing the divine within your heart. That's the first thing, but that's not all. Then the next step in spiritual life is asking yourself, what do I do when I step out of the meditation room? This is very important, I think, often neglected among spiritual aspirants. They think that, yeah, if I follow my guru's instructions twice a day, or once a day, whatever your guru tells you, that, then I'm doing spiritual practice. So I do spiritual practice in the early morning and in the evening, and the rest of the day I just do whatever I want. no. A sincere spiritual aspirant has to look at what, that, what you're doing 24 hours a day. What are you doing for the rest of the day? Um, I really like this statement made by Alfred North Whitehead, a famous American philosopher. He said, Religion is what the individual does with his own solitariness. And if you are never solitary, you are never religious. What does he mean? He means, what do you do with your free time? What do you do with your free time? What do you do the rest of the day outside of work? I think that's very important. And the idea is, again, not to run off to the woods or a forest or a cave and to become a monk. No. Whatever you're doing, analyze what you're doing and ask yourself with what attitude you're doing it. You're married. That means you have a spouse. What's my relationship with my wife like? Or my husband, for that matter. Or whoever your partner is. What's it like? Is it very clingy? Is it a, is it a kind of healthy unhealthy codependence? Is there a very strong emotional attachment if they leave for a one or two day outing, work outing or something? You, you somehow, you can't even live, you can't stay for a moment. You're constantly thinking of that person. That's unhealthy. That's rajasic. Or with that same spouse, you can have a very sattvika relationship. You'll, You'll love each other, but without that clinging, without that strong, debilitating, selfish, emotional attachment. Expectation of return. I'll do this for you, but I expect this in return. Quid pro quo. It's what Swami Vivekananda used to call sanctified shopkeeping. This is very common, too, in relationships with friends, with loved ones. Parents with their kids. It's very common. Parents will lovingly raise their kids, but then expect something in return. So now you better give back to me after I've raised you for 18 years. And that's not, that's not sattvika. That's more rajasic. But as I said, we can kind of expand and adapt this three gunas paradigm to the present day. How do we do that? What kind of music do you listen to? Ask yourself when you're in a car, when you're, 
whatever. Some people have earbuds when they run or do some exercise. What do you listen to? What kind of music, if you listen to music? If it's all popular music, most popular music tends to be very rajasic. And I'm not saying stop listening to popular music, but it depends on where you are. I completely stopped, and now I'm, I just listen to classical music and spiritual music, devotional music called bhajans in, in India. But you'll find that there's a, there are qualitatively different kinds of music, and as a result, the listening experience, what you get from listening to pop music, is fundamentally different from what you get from listening to spiritual classical music. Now, the thing is, not all classical music is alike, is the same. There's also Tamasika classical music, there's Rajasika classical music, and there's also Sattvika. So I want to restrict it to Sattvika classical music. You might ask, well, what do I mean by that? There's a whole genre of Western classical music called sacred classical music, and I love it. Sacred classical music means these, these classical composers like Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, many others. Often they were Christians. They were Catholic or Protestant. Bach was Protestant. What do they do? And they were very pious, many of them. So what did they do? They took the Catholic Mass, for instance, like Mozart was Catholic, and they set it to music, every part of it. Just before the lecture, I was listening to a really sublime piece by Palestrina, a great Catholic uh, composer from the Renaissance period. Uh, I recommend it. Missa Gabriel Archangelis. And I was just, it's just four minutes. It's just absolutely sublime. The Kyrie. The first part of the Catholic Mass is Kyrie Eliason. It's Greek. Christe Eliason, Kyrie Eliason. So simple, these lyrics. O Lord, have mercy on me. O Christ, have mercy on me. O Lord, have mercy on me. And these gifted classical composers, they have put this, these simple six words to music in the most incredible ways. Mozart has a mass in C minor, Bach has a mass in B minor, Beethoven has Missa Solemnis, and Palestrina, Missa, this is one of his many, many masses that he set to music. And it's just incredible. Just listen to the first four minutes of the Missa Gabriel Archangelis, and you'll feel like you're elevated to heaven. It's like the soundtrack to heaven. It's incredible. And listen to the, the latest pop hit. How does it make you feel? And just compare it. You're the guinea pig. Run the experiment on yourself. So I'm not saying stop listening to pop, popular music. Try to add a little bit of sattva. Inject a little sattva into your daily life at this very mon- like sort of ordinary level. That means... Listen to maybe a classical piece before you go to bed, maybe when you wake up in the morning, something like that. And you'll eventually acquire a taste for it. As I said, it's an acquired taste because as Gita says, sattvika forms of happiness are like poison in the beginning and like nectar in the end. Some people will just take to it from the beginning. That's wonderful. Other people, it takes some doing. Anything really worth achieving is something that you really have to strive for. It's the opposite of instant gratification. And because you have to earn that happiness, that fulfillment, it's a lasting fulfillment. It's not momentary in the way that instant gratifications are. That's the idea. What kind of movies do you watch? Are they always Hollywood movies? I I live in Hollywood now, so... Or do you sometimes like to watch more sattvika films? There are some incredible sattvika films. Um, Just to give some examples, have any of you seen Ingmar Bergman's films? Seven Seal, Wild Strawberries, incredible. Tarkovsky, The Silence. One of my favorite contemporary filmmakers who stopped making films altogether, and he's, he's one of the few filmmakers who still films in black and white, on principle. Belatar, a great Hungarian filmmaker. He's famous for many things, but one of the things is for making 
one of the longest films ever made. It's, it's called Satan Tango, seven, seven hours. And it was absolutely riveting. There's these long takes. He's famous for these long panning scenes with the camera. It's incredible. It's a meditation. Another one I'd recommend, Integrate Silence is the English translation. It's a German documentary of a monastery in France, completely silent. And it just tracks the life of monks in this monastery. It's, it's incredible. It's almost three hours. And again, some people will be like, oh, this is so boring after five minutes. But other people, I, honestly, it's like, it's, it, watching that is a kind of meditation. Another example of a Satuka film. What kind of books do you read? James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, or Fifty Shades of Grey? All right, I'm not going to describe. Anyway, that's more radisic, right? Exercise. Do you exercise? If you don't exercise, probably because you're tamasic. You're very tamasic. Or you're very busy. But, but again, it's all about priorities. And even if you're busy, if you're really serious, you'll be able to do exercise at, at some point in the day. You'll be able to work it into your schedule. But even if you do exercise, with what attitude do you do it? You can do exercise in a rajasic way. You can do exercise, the same kind of exercise, in a sattvic way. What do I mean? Doing exercise in a rajasic way is you go to a gym and you wear very skimpy clothes so that you attract other people's attention and you, and you treat the gym like a meat market and you're kind of doing this kind of showing off your biceps. Rajasic. And it, that strengthens body consciousness because you're obsessed with making your body as beautiful as possible to attract other people's attention. You can do the same weightlifting, the same kinds of exercise, but in a sattvika way, if you do it in order to keep the body healthy, because as a spiritual aspirant, you cannot engage in spiritual practices without a healthy body. If you think of your body as a temple of God, as a temple of the divine, and you do your exercises like that. More than that, even more concretely, if you've been initiated into a tradition, or if you repeat a mantra as part of your spiritual practice, why don't you do it during your spiritual exercise, or during your physical exercise? Physical, why is it that so many people avoid exercise? Because of that tamas, they don't want to put their, they don't want to tax their body. Because they're so body conscious, they don't want to put their body through temporary hardship in order to ultimately reap physical and mental health benefits. But studies have shown, very recent studies, have shown that exercise is more effective than antidepressants, prescription antidepressants, in helping uh, mental illnesses like depression and, and anxiety. And that, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take prescription medicines. That's, that's often necessary. But one thing that's often neglected as a first-line treatment for depression and anxiety is exercise. Exercise really helps with men. There's a direct connection between bodily health and mental health. That's the basic principle. Another thing, what kind of people do you hang out with? You can just ask yourself, you know, what are my friends like? Some people love hanging out with very Rajasika people often because they themselves are rajasic. And there's a basic principle in spiritual life. If you hang out with people with a certain quality, you'll eventually cultivate, you'll, have, you'll get more and more of that quality. And so if you hang out with people who are more spiritually inclined, what happens? Viveka Churamani, or this is not Viveka Churamani, this is from a, a, a song, often called Bhajagovindam, but it's actually called Moham Udgara. Satsangatve Nisangatvam. In holy company, if you, if you keep your time with good people, spiritually inclined people, you will eventually cultivate sattva and you'll become more and more detached from 
the things of this world. Whereas if you keep bad company, very worldly company, you will become more and more worldly. You'll get more and more immersed in worldliness. So what kind of people do you hang out with? Maybe you should try to associate with people who are more along your spiritual wavelength. That'll also help. Do you have addictions? Big problem throughout the world now. So many different kinds of addiction. There's substance addiction, addictions, which, have, which are kind of age-old, alcohol and tobacco and various kinds of harder drugs. But now there's this new kind of addiction. And psychologists call this, they have a different category for, called, uh, called behavioral addictions. Social media use is an example. Not using social media, but some people are addicted to social media, especially young kids. That's a kind of behavioral addiction. And there are whole books written in many, many scientific studies about how this addiction arises. They say that chemically speaking, taking an injection of heroin and having this dopamine rush, you, the exact same thing happens when you tweet something and you get like you know 10 retweets within the next minute. You get that dopamine rush. When you post a YouTube video and you get a bunch of likes and you see those likes and you feel good about yourself, dopamine rush. So again, you get addicted to that dopamine rush, which is another kind of addiction. So it's actually structurally parallel and chemically identical in many respects to substance addictions, addiction to alcohol, addiction to hard drugs. So it's very difficult to break these addictions. And all these addictions are kind of, basically, they're a combination of tamas and rajas. Tamasic because it's highly repetitive. You can't, you're, you're stuck in this kind of vicious cycle of suffering that you can't get out of. That's tamasic. Rajasic because remember that rajas is a source of desire. And it's because you crave that instant gratification. I can't live without it. And then you succumb again. That's rajas. And so if you ask yourself, again, brutally honest self-assessment, in the course of the day, do I have any addictions? And if so, how do I overcome them? Because if you break them, you will help to cultivate more sattva and you'll make more and more spiritual progress. Otherwise, you might be sitting in the meditation room, sitting for two hours, three hours, doing your mantra, but it's like trying to row a boat but with your anchor still (laughs) in the ground. Ask yourself what those anchors might be in your spiritual life. So I'm not saying, again, stop all social media use. Use social media more mindfully. Ask yourself, when I use social media, what's my main motivation for using social media? Is it just to connect with friends that I'm in family? Or is it, you know, especially with, there are a lot of studies about teen girls and the way that they use it. And they're constantly comparing themselves and pictures of themselves with others, with their peers. And, oh, she's so much more beautiful than I am. And this is often the source of terrible mental illness sometimes resulting in suicide. Some people are foolish enough to, there's a whole contest of how do you make the most impressive selfie that'll get the most retweets on Instagram or whatever. I'm I'm mixing up social media here because I don't use much social media myself. So anyway, I don't know what it is. I think it's likes on Instagram. So how do I get the most likes? I do something extremely risky or dangerous or crazy. So some people are taking a selfie while they're kind of hanging right at, at like on a precipice or a cliff. What happens? Some of them have died trying to take a selfie of themselves in these very dangerous situations. Again, it's just a very stupid use of social media. Try to make your use of social media more sattvic. So um, one, one, one scholar has written an entire book on this issue, and she recommends what she calls self-binding strategies, 
I think her name is Lemke at Stanford. Um, she says, one thing you can do is regulate your use of social media. If you find that you are kind of addicted to your phone, one thing you can do is you can just tell yourself, I'm not going to use social media on my phone. I'll only use it on my tablet or my laptop. What that does instantly is because it's the phone that's always with us. So if you say, I'm only going to use social media, Facebook or whatever it is, on, on my laptop or tablet, then you've automatically kind of regulated yourself. You're, you've restricted your use of social media to certain times of day when you have access to your tablet or your laptop, for instance. That's one example. But there are other things. Maybe you find yourself using social media late at night right before bed. Not at all a healthy practice. Stop doing that. That's one example. Read the gospel instead of <laughs> checking your Instagram or Facebook feed. That's another very good example of how you can replace a very simple daily habit with something that's more sattvic and more spiritual. So, I want to conclude on this note. Sri Aurobindo, he used to say, all life is yoga. All life is yoga. Never think that spiritual life is restricted to the meditation room, to visiting our centers. What do you do after you leave the Vedanta Society, for instance? What are you going to do for the rest of the day? And how do you make each of your daily activities in the course of the day, minute by minute, more spiritual? What do I mean by more spiritual? By making it more sattvic. Thank you. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Sri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu just a short announcement. I don't remember the procedure, but I'm going to make one announcement, which is next Sunday, there will be a spiritual talk here by Swami Arubeshananda. Thank you. So I think I'll be greeting you guys now outside, and then um, anyone who's interested can come back for a brief question and answer session. Thank you. everyone. This is part two of our session, I guess, our question and answer session. So, anyone have any questions about anything I said? Yes, please. Oh, is it not working? Oh, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Uh, this is a question about music. Hmm. I've been a classical music musician since childhood, grew up playing piano and oh. learning Bach and Mozart. Mm. Then I became a bassoonist in high mm. school. I've been playing in a symphony, the mm. community symphony, SBCC symphony, but I was recently released because they no longer needed me in the orchestra. I think mm. it's because they wanted younger people, whatever. Mm. So now I'm playing in a group called the Primetime Band. Mm. It's a band made up of people over, over age. Mm. And we play all Rajasic music. Oh. And I go to it because I feel joy mm. in the company of right. the elders. Right. And we bring joy to the people right. we play with and the, the free concerts yeah. and things. But as far as the music itself... It gets in my head, yeah. and it's rajasic. Yeah. So I have a dilemma. Should I mm. keep playing in that mm. or not? Join a more sattvic classical group. Can't you do that? I mean, the, by the way, there's a devotee here named Michael. He's a great singer. And he was once part of a classical choir. And it's called 
Oh, I'm sorry, Michael, for not remembering the name of it. Anyway, he took me to a performance here in a church nearby, and it was wonderful. Very sattvic. The only Rajasic part, which I hated, and I told him about it. After every little piece, they started <laughs> clapping like this, which just ruins the entire mood. <laughs> so with classical music, to keep the sattvic mood, don't clap until the end of a performance. That's my opinion. I'm, just t- I'm telling those people out there who, who ever do classical performances, I hate it when people clap in the middle of... It's, it's awful because it completely changes the mood then it becomes more about applauding the virtuosity of the performers rather than the spiritual benefits of listening to the music you know um, sorry I went on a rant but uh, <laughs> yeah so I would I mean can't you explore um, more sattvika groups that you could be part of I mean that, that would be my suggestion yeah okay well then there you go that would be my mm-hmm Okay. Okay, but do 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 uh, other kinds of exercise uh, apart from that. Oh yeah. So there you go, and that's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Choir of voices. Yeah. Okay. Choir of voices is Michael's ex choir, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Yes, please. Hello. Uh, Oh, sorry. Okay, it was first you, I guess. Then yeah. Okay, then we'll come. Okay. So my question is: uh, Does it mean that sattvic person will always, will never have any anger or never get into confrontation, and they will treat everyone at par? It, it's all. I should have mentioned this in the lecture, but it's all a matter of degree. Okay, and so if you're a hundred percent sattvic you just you cannot lose your temper you'll never have emotional reactions but most people even if they're very sattvic they're not 100% sattvic they might be 96% or 90% which means what they might sometimes fly off the handle but compared to the rajasic person who's flying off his or her handle you know every other minute that's a lot of spiritual progress do you see what i mean so it's really a matter of degree and the sattvic person even when that person loses his or her temper will immediately reflect on it maybe feel bad about it, maybe apologize to the person to whom they lost their temper to or shouted at. Do you see what I mean? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to say that sattvika people will never lose their temper, for instance, but they'll lose their temper less frequently than rajasika people, and they will be more reflective and mindful when they do succumb to more egoistic tendencies like emotional reactions and losing their temper. Thanks. Uh, just please wait for the mic to come. Yes, Swami. Uh, Arjuna is my hero. And in the Bhagavad Gita, he asked Krishna, why is it that I do things yeah. or that we do things yeah. that we shouldn't do and don't do things that we should do? Yeah. Uh, what is the force that drives this? What is yeah. the energy? Yeah, and it's rajas. Yeah, and Krishna kind of—I don't know—I I envisioned Krishna kind of smiling and saying, mm. "Well, Arjuna, you're pre, predestined almost, or, or there's mm. there's forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're predetermined." Okay, and so. I try to reinterpret that as being karma, as like I've made, you know, it's an a priori mm-hmm. that certain events have taken place and now mm-hmm. 
Okay. This is the way I will. Okay. Well, this is yeah. the way I will respond now. Mm-hmm. So I've I've been puzzling over Krishna's as, answer, mm-hmm. and I just wondered if you could. Uh, okay. Uh, comment. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. So I I I thought when you were started talking about that verse that I was understood one verse from chapter three. Arjuna's question, which means, what is it in us that makes us commit sin, even against our own volition? But then the problem is when you summarize the answer, that's not the answer he gives. <laughs> so I think you're mixing up two different verses. I think I know what you're thinking of. I'll come to that in a second. But let me first tell you Krishna's answer to that question of Arjuna. It's, Kama esha krodha esha rajoguna samudbhavahat why is it that you do unethical actions even in spite of your best efforts to avoid them? Kama esha, krodha esha, rajoguna samudva means lust and worldly desires and anger which stem from rajas, rajoguna samudbhavaha. That's why it's so relevant to our lecture. I thought that's why you're... Mahashano Mahapapma Vidhyanam Hivaidinam, which means it is the it's all devouring. Desire. This is the nature of desire. If you look at the logic of desire, you have a desire for a million dollars. Let's say after fifty years of great effort you get the million dollars. What happens? You're not satisfied because now your peer group changes. They're all multimillionaires, and now you want ten million dollars. All devouring. Mahashano Mahapapma. And the 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 cause of all sin, of all unethical actions. Vidhyanam ehavairanam. Know this to be your enemy in this in spiritual life. What's the enemy? The enemy is actually rajas. It's because it's from rajas that stems kama and loba, greed and desire, okay, and anger ultimately. So now that's Krishna's answer to that question. I think what you are thinking of is actually a, a very different statement of Krishna's, which is not in response to one of Arjuna's questions. But Krishna makes the following statement. Which means all people follow nature. It's, um, and even when you try to restrain nature, it won't help anything because you'll do what you're destined to do. And there are other statements like that as well. Well, it's complicated because the thing is, I mean, if you look at the Sanskrit, the original Sanskrit, it's pretty strong language that Arjuna uses. In chapter 18, very, very strong language is used. And Krishna says... Ishvara sarvabhutanam riddeshetnatishtati Brahmayan sarvabhutani yantrarudhani maya which means God is God dwells in the hearts of all beings and makes us revolve like we're cogs in a machine <laughs> it uses this metaphor yantrarudhani maya uh, so it's as if we have absolutely no free will uh, I talk about this actually if you're interested in a scholarly article um, if you type in my name, Swami Medananda, on Google, you can find it. The article is called Hard Theological Determinism and the Illusion of Free Will. Hard Theological Determinism and the Illusion of Free Will. And I begin with two epigraphs from the Bhagavad Gita. One telling us again and again to engage in spiritual practice and renounce sense pleasures. The next one saying, along the lines of what you said, which is, we're, we have no free will. <laughs> because there seems to be a prima facie contradiction between these two statements in the Gita. And I, I explain that there's a way to reconcile these two things. Um, but I focus in that article on Sri Ramakrishna's views on free will. So maybe I can uh, kind of talk about that a little bit in response to your question about free will. Um, this is actually not... Um, it is relevant. It's relevant to the three gunas. How? Because according to the Gita, 
Maya is nothing but the three gunas. Daivi, Hiesha, Gunamai, Mamamaya, Duratiya. Krishna says, this world is composed of the three gunas. That is my Maya. Okay, and it's those three gunas that bind us to this world. And, in a sense, and those gunas, those three gunas also comprise Prakriti, which means nature with a capital N, we can say. And so that statement of Krishna's, it's nature that makes us do things. We don't have free will. Also means indirectly, it's the gunas in us that are making us do things. Right? Okay, so this question does come up. I've been talking the whole lecture about we should be more sattvic, but if we don't have free will, what's the point? We're going to do what we're destined to do. In a sense, yes, but more deeply, no. And let me explain why. According to Sri Ramakrishna, we actually don't have any free will. And I know you, you're using language like predispositions, not even predispositions, we don't have any free will. But there's a catch. The catch is, so long as you have not attained illumination, spiritual illumination, so long as you have not realized God, you cannot but help, you cannot help but feel that you are free and therefore morally responsible for your actions. Okay, so no matter h- how much you tell yourself, how many times you tell yourself, I'm, uh, you, you know, I, uh, I don't have any free will, I'm an instrument of God, until you realize God, you can't internalize that. And you can't live on that basis. So, so long as we have not attained spiritual illumination, we must live in this world as if we are free and morally responsible for our actions. That becomes the basis of spiritual practice. Just go ahead and try to believe that you have no free will. And you're going to, you know, the moment you get out of the chair, you're going to do that out of your own volition. Or it's going to feel that way to you, right, if you haven't realized God. So that's the idea. Um, And then somebody asks, well, then what about the person who has attained illumination? That person can do anything. Good, bad, the ugly. And then Sri Ramakrishna says, but the person who has realized God can never take a false step. Because they're a perfect instrument of God. And God will never make us do anything bad. That's the idea. Okay, so that's a short answer, but if you want details, please look at that article. I'll say it one more time. Hard theological determinism and the illusion of free will. Type in Medananda free will and you'll find it. There's only one article I wrote on free will. Yeah, my name followed by free will in Google, you'll find it. Yeah, sure. Uh, Please give him the mic. Thank you. These are two separate questions. Um, These two words... Zoftik? Sattvic, yeah. Sattvic. And mm-hmm. the other one? Rajasic. Could you, could you spell? Is, is yeah, it, sure. So I, I want to look them up more. I want to follow them, understand them more. And I of course, of course. Them in my head. Okay, let me answer that first, and then uh, we'll get to your second question. This is an easy one. Uh, as a noun, the three energies are sattva, S-A-T-T-V-A, highest energy, rajas, R-A-J-A-S, and tamas, T-A-M-A-S. As adjectives, sattvika, you can call a person sattvika. You don't say a person is sattva, you say a person is sattvik, sattvika. S-A-T-T-V-I-K-A. And rajasika as an adjective is R-A-J-A-S-I-K-A. And tamasika is T-A-M-A-S-I-K-A. Okay? Second Thank question. you. Sure. Usually helpful. And then the next, the, the films that you mentioned at the lecture... Uh, um, could you repeat them? Okay. The n- titles, the film, and if there's anything else like you mentioned, my dinner with Andre that comes to mind, mm. uh, it would be just wonderful. To film, film-wise. Yeah. 
so I mentioned Ingmar Bergman, the great Swedish filmmaker, and I just mentioned a couple of his. I mean, I've, I've watched almost his entire repertoire, but uh, two of my favorites are The Seventh Seal and uh, Wild Strawberries. We, oh, there's, he has a whole, what he calls, what he himself called, I think, the Religious Trilogy. And they're all fantastic, but I would recommend Winter Light in particular. Winter Light. Um, and I mentioned Andrei Tarkovsky, the great Russian filmmaker. He has some great films like um, The Sacrifice. It's a two-in-one because The Sacrifice begins, the first song right off the bat is Bach's, one of my favorite Bach arias, Erbamadish, which means, O oh Lord, have mercy on me for the sake of my tears. Um meine Zerren Willen in German. This is from Bach's Matthew Passion. So I'm also plugging uh, classical music here. So uh, I strongly recommend Bach's St. Matthew Passion. And one of the most sublime parts of that is this aria sung by a soprano uh, called Erbamadish, E-R-B-A-R-M-E-D-I-C-H, have mercy on me. Um, and so Andrei Tarkovsky's sacrifice, the sacrifice starts with, with this piece by Bach. It's incredible. Um, and then... Uh, Hungarian. A- Hungarian filmmaker named Bela Tarr, B-E-L-A, last name is T-A-R-R. And some of the films are Satan Tango, if, you're, if you can handle a seven-hour film. Um, S-A-T-A-N-T-A-N-G-O, Satan Tango, it's just pronounced more in a European way. Um, Damnation is incredible. And his li- last one, his last film is amazing. It's called Turin Horse, I think. They're all incredible. Um, and oh, and I should say, my, my favorite contemporary classical composer is Arvo Pert, a great Estonian composer. Arvo Pert is an Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian. And all of his music is profoundly spiritual after a certain point in his life. He was actually, he made very Rajasika music and very kind of like, he was like really interested in showing off his virtuosity in the early phase. And then he went through this kind of spiritual transformation. And he just, his entire musical style changed. And he adopted what's called the Tintinabuli style of music. And it's incredible. I mean, I can just mention a few things, but like, Für Alina, which means for Alina in German, A-L-I-N-A. It's just a short piano piece. It's amazing. Um, but he also has done a lot of sacred classical music. So there's a, a mass that he's composed. He's set to music called Berliner Messe. He knew German, that's why he composed a lot in German. Um, and so this is a mass conducted in German, Berliner Messe, B-E-R-L-I-N-E-R, Messe, M-E-S-S-E is mass in German. There's an incredible piece called Te Deum, To God, T-E-D-E-U-M. It's a half-hour piece, it's really incredible. It's all in Latin. A lot of his pieces are in Latin because church music was written in Latin. Um, Salve Regina, Save Me, O... Uh, Divine Mother, meaning Mother Mary. That's also incredible. These are just some examples. Yeah, that's Arvo Pert. Okay, so, uh, and uh, anyone else? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing. There's so much that it's hard to, yeah, I can go on, but thank you. Well, second, yeah, so that was your second question, right? Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. Any other questions? So I, I see all three of them are being separate and not running into each other. What are the three? The, the energies. The gunas, oh, yeah. I see. Yeah, Absolutely right. separate. Like you, if, 
if you're more Roger or less, Roger won't make mm. you any more Celtic. Or Thomas. Or it's not even a stepping stone to the other. Mm. And But there is a hierarchy that you seems to uh, be. Mm -hmm. And that is that uh, Thomas seems to get the worst rap of it. Mm -hmm. And um, when I look into and a goodness in that, one mm. I would say that one would go deep inside and um, it, it's more of the depth of death or the depth of something dying mm. um, prior to the rebirth, but one has to go through that. That would be Thomas, mm. like the decay of and then the rebirth comes out of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really see it linked. Uh, it could be linked. And, uh, and also, Raja has a duality to it. And I don't think that sattva has a duality to it. Because any struggle that goes on in the sattva area mm. is Raja or mm -hmm. Thomas. But it's okay. not. It's not in sattva. That's just how I see them, mm -hmm. and I and I don't see them interacting with one another. You could say, "Oh, you're a really nice guy," and you might mm. say, "Well, you, wait, you know, maybe not this evening." You know, you could change in your moods. Oh, All sure, of, of course, you're yeah, one and yeah. Then you're the mm. other, mm. so they don't really over. They don't. They don't connect. Okay. But no, I, th I think I think you raise a really important point, yeah. and I, that's something I probably should have mentioned in the lecture. But uh, let me put it this way. You're right that, um, first of all, that nobody is just one, one energy and, you know, 100% sattvic and not at all rajasik or tamasik or 100% tamasik and not rajasik or sattvic. So they all come mixed together and there are certain verses in the Gita which talk about that. But nonetheless, and you're also right that, you know, on a particular day, like today, I've come to lovely Santa Barbara and we've got this amazing monastery overlooking the ocean. I'm feeling more sattvic. When I come back to Hollywood and have to deal with daily activities and... I might develop more rajas. That's also true. So these things fluctuate. But nonetheless, a particular guna still predominates in each of us at any given moment of time. And there's a kind of general current based on your way of life. You can, it's still accurate, I think, largely, to call somebody, you know, that person is very rajasic or very sattvic or very tamasic. That doesn't mean that person is 100% rajasic or tamasic or sattvic. So that's one part part um but the other thing you said uh the first part i'm trying to go back to what you said what was that first thing you said about um what was the first example you used can you remind me no no i'm because i was going to disagree with you about something and then i forgot what i was going to disagree with you about can you remind me? Um, the duality of you know, Before you went to the duality stuff, right before that, oh, what was it? The, the advantage of, tom, of uh, Thomas. Okay, Thomas. that's what I was... Yeah. Advantages. So what you're saying, as far as I understand it, is that when, you, when the body perishes, right, but no, before rebirth... The, no, no, in the oh. body, when you go... If someone says, boy, that person is really deep or really heavy or like, you know, uh, you know it's like too much... For if you're looking from the outside, but that person, it, it, there's value for that person in that process. Well, I'm not. Look, 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 look. I, but again, I, I'm trying to find value in Thomas. There's value in everything, and you know, I mean, there's. Look, I mean, I think we learn more from our mistakes than from our <laughs> successes, to be honest. And we learn more often from suffering than from happiness. And so, 
people will, you know, why is it that so many people in Alcoholics Anonymous have to hit rock bottom before they come out of it? That's the, so I'm not, I'm not, certainly not saying that it's not valuable to go through tamasic experiences, but the point is that's not the end goal. The end goal is to become more sattvic and then ultimately attain illumination. So there's a, there's a spiritual, when Sri Aurobindo says all life is yoga, he really means it. He's not saying except for the tamasic parts of our life. No, everything. And a sincere spiritual aspirant in the midst of intense suffering, intensely tamasic kind of behavior will be mindful and reflective enough to think about the experience they've undergone and try to learn from it. So Swami Vivekananda used to say, the secret of life is not enjoyment, but education through experience. That's why one thing I like about Vedanta is it's not preachy. It doesn't say do this and don't do that in that way. But it says try to learn from whatever experiences you're undergoing, whatever those experiences might be, the good, the bad, the ugly, whether it's tamasic or rajasic or sattvic. Do it, fine. And then see whether you got out of it what you thought you would get out of it. See how it's affecting your life. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Okay, thank you. Anyone else? Any other questions? Yes. Since nobody else has a question, I'll just offer the observation to you that there's a wonderful Japanese director. Oh, Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I love his films as well. Yes, I'm really enjoying this. Um, so the aspect of what you're saying is the aspect of um, finding the your the right uh, what way to act or be or do is is really subject to the physical because without the physical we couldn't experience that mm-hmm. whatever we're learning here mm-hmm. um, so they're synergistic yeah absolutely so that um, it's it's more or less cause and effect I think is what you're saying but in in separating it into different energies it becomes kind of confusing because and then to take out of it that our free will choice mm-hmm. isn't involved is taking away from what's the purpose of, of me learning it. Yeah, but remember Getting what I said. Yeah, no, I get it. But so long as we have not attained illumination, we do have choice. Right. That's the idea. Is no, it? I see. We can't help but feel that we're choosing whether to be sattvic or tamasic or rajasic. Yeah. 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 Oh, and yeah, and uh, one thing I wanted about film, sorry for going on about film, but I've only mentioned Western examples and I don't want to be ethnocentric. Uh, and so there's a wonderful Indian filmmaker, Bengali filmmaker named Shottujit Rai, R-A-Y. And he's done some incredible films. I'd recommend Potter Panchali, his first film, and um, Jalshaghod, for instance, and there are many others. Uh, he's, he was a very sattvic filmmaker in general. He made some Rajasic films, or more for kids and stuff, but the ones I mentioned are extremely sattvic. Yeah. What about the film of the monastery? You said yeah. three, three hours? Yeah. Three? Integrate Silence. And integrate Silence. Huh? And who's... Yeah, I, I, he's not... I mean, I hadn't heard of him before I saw the film. I don't remember. He's just... Type in Integrate Silence on Google and you'll find it. Integrate into great silence. Into great silence. 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 S-I-L-E-N-C-E. Yeah. 
Thank you. Anyone else? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Greetings. Sorry? The gospel is a good thing to read if you don't already read it because Sri Ramakrishna does talk about the gunas a lot. And if you want uh, a more traditional classical text, Bhagavad Gita, especially chapters 14, 17, and 18. And then there's this question of which translation to use and I think it's a huge problem if you don't know the original language because every translation has certain strengths and certain weaknesses. And there's always this problem with translations in any language, but I think it's especially true when you're translating across from Indian languages to English is that there's often a trade-off between uh, beauty on the one hand and accuracy on the other. And so some translators opt for beauty slash spiritual power slash poetic power at the expense to some extent of literal accuracy. And as I said, that has certain advantages. But at the same time, if you want exactly what the Gita originally says in the original Sanskrit, those are not going to be your best guides. And then there are other translators who go for I want to be as accurate as possible. And then you read it and it's like, oh my goodness. It's like super stiff and uh, kind of technical sounding and dry and it doesn't move you. Whereas the beauty of the original Sanskrit Gita, for instance, is that it's equally very, very poetic spiritual philosophy. When you read it, they're in verses. They're in poetry. It's composed in verse. You can't possibly translate it in any other language. There's a sing-songy kind of chanting rhythm to it. Yada yada hi dharmasya glanid bhavati bharata pyuttanam dharmasya tadatmanam sajamyaham. A beautiful rhythm. There's a, in, in any good poetry, there's a deep connection between the meaning of what's being said with the form in which it's said. The particular words used, the pacing, the rhythm, word choice, all these things are all matter, all lost in translation. Um, and the whole purpose of these ancient scriptures is not just to teach us about spiritual life but it's to actually give us a spiritual upliftment that's the beauty of knowing the original language that it actually it can actually elevate you just from reading it with concentration because the words are mantras and mantra means mananatrayate iti mantra it means the mantra the, the words of a rishi of an inspired soul can directly lift you up out of worldliness and help you make spiritual progress. So I'm a real, sti- I'm a scholar, and I, I'm a real stickler for trying to learn things in the original language. So, you know, if I, if I my PhD work was in German philosophy, so I learned German. Uh, I'm a scholar of Indian philosophy now, so I learned Sanskrit. Uh, I'm a scholar of Sri Ramakrishna, so I learned Bengali. <laughs> um, and and it, it, there's just a heaven and hell difference between reading the original and reading translations. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Going once, going twice. Oh, hi, hi, nice to see you. Okay, so we'll stop. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Sri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu